from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, why global risk is driving the conversation in Davos, David Crane on corporate renewables purchasing, and Intel and the next generation of conflict mineral issues. We're testing our metal this week on 350. It's January 22nd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here with GreenBiz Senior Editor, Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's uh, another beautiful week here in Oakland, California. We've got a lot of rain, which we desperately need. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really stop uh, us from all that's going on. Yeah, I know. I've been getting back to the reporting grind after the new year, reports flying at us from all angles and everything. And we're creating our own, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. I know you've also been on the road a little bit. Any interesting things to report back? Oh, lots of interesting. I was down at uh, Google yesterday talking with their Sidewalk Labs people. And then earlier in the week, I visited a company called Solaria. Uh, Old friends of mine I hadn't seen in a while, but I really hadn't seen what they've been doing. And it's really interesting. Uh, they're based in Fremont down in Silicon Valley. Uh, they're, they've got some solar technologies that uh, are innovative and in some ways uh, disruptive and uh, particularly around uh, they, they take one of the things they do is they take uh, commodity solar panels and they have a proprietary technology that cuts them into tiny, tiny strips which they then reassemble with with ribbons and and and, and they, what they end up with is, is a more efficient panel that also has a flexible shape that can be used in lots of different ways and so it's a it's a high efficiency solution based with a commodity uh, panel that uh, again it's a technology play so that they they're not manufacturing it they're licensing it to a number of other players including one very big solar company um, in in Silicon Valley they also make some. Uh, uh, integrated building, integrated solar products, and they make uh, solar powered greenhouses because you know greenhouses, um, you know, it takes a lot of energy to run the lights and all the things that that happen and fans, and now they they've got solar panels embedded in that. So it's just, you know I'm always impressed of of as as much as solar is really taking off, how much more innovation there is to come. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating to hear about that. We spend so much time talking about the economics of clean energy, which we'll actually delve into a little bit later in this episode. Um, but cool to hear that there's still innovation going on in our backyard. Yeah. So um, without further ado, let's get into the week in review. So one of the big stories this week is the World Economic Forum conference in Davos, Switzerland. It's always a uh, the word elite always goes with <laughs> with any articles I've seen about Davos in terms of who, who's there, and um, we know a lot of people there. I've had conversations uh, with people in Davos, or email or phone, even with Bill McDonough is there, and a friend Aaron Kramer from BSR. I've been in touch with him this week. Um, and you know they're they're covering you know what's hot on the world stage. You know, the, certainly the stock market and the oil prices is 
is is high on that um, list, and and turmoil in Europe and migration is certainly part of it. Inequality, uh, income, and other has risen up, uh, I think. But uh, climate change is is very much a part of that. Yeah, I think the theme this year, they're terming it the fourth industrial revolution, which is a compelling frame, um, sort of thinking about a convergence of natural systems, digitization, and sort of old school manufacturing. Where does everything go from here? Uh, themes we talk about a lot, like last week, we were delving into 3D printing and some of these little niches, but thinking about the big picture, I think is really what's going on in Davos. Um, not to mention you have celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, I heard just plunk down 15 million for some new environmental causes. So all those sideshows as well. But our senior writer, Barbara Grady, also had a great piece on one of the many reports coming out ahead of the, the event. And she looked earlier this week at a PwC survey of CEOs from 83 countries. Yeah, there's a number of reports that come out about risk this in the past week in the run-up to Davos. This one that you're mentioning that Barbara wrote about is from PwC, and and another one uh, is from our friends at Marsh and McLennan. They do the Global Risk Report uh, with others for the World Economic Forum. But what was in the uh, PwC report, Lauren? Yeah, you mentioned risk. That's definitely the unifying thread. Um, So in this PwC report in particular, um, there was some overall pretty gloomy findings. Only 27% of executives expect the global economy to grow next year. And there's sort of the predictable anxiety about regulation and are my tax rates going to go up? But the really interesting thing to us was sort of this web of interconnected risks that PwC tried to map out. And it's showing how seemingly kind of wonky things like consumer demand patterns and the political climate in different countries could, in fact, be influenced by issues like food security, water insecurity, uh, climate change being the the overriding factor there. Yeah, I really encourage people to take a look at the interconnections map that uh, we reprinted in the story from the report because uh, you see just the, the variety of things from extreme weather to large-scale uh, involuntary migration to uh, the fiscal crisis and asset bubbles to cyber attacks and 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 how they map out and this really literally connects the dots, uh, which is something that we don't do a lot and understand uh, what is the relationship uh, between climate change and migration. Mm-hmm. It's also a theme we heard U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry talk about pretty candidly back in December during the Paris climate talks. He was in an event hosted by the International New York Times that we wrote about, um, which we'll link to in the notes for this story. But he uh, addressed sort of clean energy and energy independence in the context of national security, which may be sort of like the ultimate risk frame from the government perspective. So this is just building on themes that we've been and hearing more about, and it's interesting to see big professional services firms like PwC sort of flagging these risks in a survey of lots of powerful CEOs. And what's interesting about this is and all these conversations in, in, in Paris, in Davos, and these two surveys um, is really help. We're starting to think about what does it mean to be secure? What does security mean in the 21st century? As you know, I've written a book. It's coming out later this year. We'll plug that relentlessly later on this spring. But we talk about that. It's about prosperity, security, and sustainability and how those tie together and, you know, and how, you know, the migration is part of security as is climate change is part of the financial cliff and, 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 and market crashes and oil prices. And, and, and what does it mean to be secure? It's not just the absence of war. It's really a much more holistic thing. And I like 
that this elite crowd at Davos is literally connecting the dots and having these conversations and bringing security to the to the fore in a way that isn't simply beyond terrorists. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, sort of what a lot of these reports also get at is the disparities you see between different economies throughout the world, uh, which brings us to another story that our senior writer Heather Clancy was working on this week. She focused on Intel, obviously well-known California tech giant, but um, she was really delving into this broader issue of conflict minerals, which is by now pretty well known as one of the really dark spots in the whole supply chain sustainability area, uh, where you have materials like gold and tungsten coming from heavily contested areas like the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, where you have very unscrupulous characters, uh, maybe warlords profiting off of mining these raw materials, and then companies maybe ending up with those problematic materials in their finished products that they're selling all over the world. Well, um, as much as we had hoped that we were maybe turning a corner there, a new report published this week by Amnesty International also links cobalt to the use of child labor across the Congo. Um, And Heather sort of weaves that new finding into this broader push by Intel to sort of mobilize other companies, this whole buzzword of collaboration, and say, hey, we really need to sort of do better on this. One of the things that's really interesting about this, Lauren, is that uh, how far companies are ahead of the public. It, it turns out that Intel did a survey, found that at only about a third of Americans aged 18 to 35, which arguably is the sweet spot for selling electronics, which is where one of the main places that a lot of these conflict minerals end up. Only about a third had heard about conflict minerals. And frankly, I'd be surprised that they've heard about it. They don't really know what it means. They Maybe may... blood diamonds well, just because of say, the movie. Yeah, yeah, because of the movie and because that's a good age for getting engaged and married. Um, but what's interesting is how far ahead, not just Intel, but a lot of the tech companies around the world are, are, are thinking about this and trying to find ways to get around this, even though it's not being driven by their customers. Yeah, I've sat in on a few uh, sessions at different events over the past year or so on issues related to conflict minerals. And it's always interesting to hear no matter what industry is sort of at hand, whether it's the jewelry supply chain, the automotive supply chain, electronics, like you mentioned, um, it really is sort of uh, like not to make excuses for the companies, but it's not easy to get a handle on these things. You've got middlemen like smelters that are sort of getting their hands on these materials saying, oh, we don't know where came from or it's fine don't worry about it so you really have to do some legwork to get back to that original source but this is the same chain of custody issue that we have with with sustainable logging or sustainable fisheries or so many other uh, commodities and products so they will find a way to deal with this do you have any idea why this is happening now i mean this is an issue that's frankly been around for a decade or more it's certainly been around for a, a number of years why do you think this is happening now Uh, Like I mentioned, I think Amnesty International, the activist crowd, is sort of raising the flag on new minerals. So sort of saying like, okay, if you've gotten your head around tungsten, like the job's not done. You need to look at cobalt. You need to be more vigilant. Um, And I know it's also sort of uh, the different areas that are involved. Congo is the main one, but there are also disputed areas like North Korean gold. I remember there was a rash a few Mm. years ago of that getting into the supply chain. So it's sort of not being stagnant and focusing on one country or one mineral, but being vigilant there. Yeah. And and then moving from doing bad to doing good, there's this story about hand printing uh, this week that uh, our good friend and uh, 
talent show columnist Ellen Weinreb ran, which is about uh, handprinting is this term that's just sort of come of art lately, and it's still not that widely known. But if you think about it, it's pretty intuitive that a footprint is, are the impacts that you make, usually negative impacts that you have as a footprint, that a handprint are the positive benefits that your positive things your company does in terms of uh, to the world, or in this case, a lot of it's around just employee health and well-being. Um, so uh, that's now been a part of of HR, of human resources. And uh, Ellen, of course, writes about uh, attracting and retaining talent and, and how that's working in the sustainability world. Um, and so all of a sudden, this notion of handprinting is having a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Sort of giving you better ways to track social data or environmental data. Part of this whole push for more transparency and sort of letting your employees in on the company's sustainability efforts, the ever-popular engagement topic. Um, but I'm curious, Joel, I've heard sort of some, some mixed feelings about handprinting. Some people say, well, how do you even measure that? Or what does that mean? Do you, have you heard any interesting applications? Well, there was this, uh, Ellen writes about this net positive impact, uh, NPI, which is a new uh, metric that allows companies to measure this stuff. But, you know, as you said, this is kind of squishy stuff. I mean, this it is. I mean, it it is. You know, how do you measure your good? I mean, I remember uh, early on, um, uh, early on in the days of of uh, internet, that some of the companies uh, shall remain nameless were talking about trying to talk about the good that the internet was doing in the world around saving paper or giving access accessibility to people who might not be able to you know get around as well or they had a whole list of things and and it's and I was saying well yeah but if you're going to take credit for those then you also have to you know also take credit for you know child molesters and and cyber terrorism and pornography right. and everything else that's going on on the web and so there is a sort of cake and eat a two aspect of this, and and so we're this this does have uh, I see the applicability, and I can certainly see why companies would want to be able to talk about their handprint, but they've got a long way to go before they can really figure this out in a way that's frankly defensive. Mm-hmm. It also seems like part of this broader issue of measuring the unmeasurable type of things. We hear a lot about companies trying to measure how how much purpose employees feel like they're getting out of their job or all other sorts of untraditional metrics. Um, so it'll be interesting to, yeah. to, as we get more case studies. And I think it's important to note, as Ellen does in the piece, that, that there are companies, Levi Strauss, she cites, is, working, is measuring the uh, worker well-being in its supply chain around things like financial literacy, reproductive health, gender equality. And those are things that if you, you, you can start to come up with measurements, just as you can measure pain and, and well-being and other things that are in some ways qualitative or subjective. So if you do that consistently, I think there is some hope here, but it's a, we've got a long way to go. This is a conversation that's just beginning. off this week with a pretty exciting announcement in the editorial department and i know joel you've had this one in the works for a while so let's hear it the podcast reveal <laughs> well we revealed it on the pages of green biz a few days ago uh but uh, david crane the until recently the ceo of nrg energy 
uh, has been named an editor at large at GreenBiz Group. Now, a lot of people have asked, is he working for GreenBiz? Is this the new job after? No, he's out looking at uh, figuring out what his next act is. But in the meantime, and hopefully beyond his job search, uh, he's uh, going to be writing for us, a regular column. He's going to be speaking at our events and maybe doing some other things uh, with us as well. Um, and as you know, he's got a really lot, lot of interesting things to say. Just in the past few weeks on Green Biz, uh, he's had, well, three pieces now. One was a, a farewell letter to NRG employees that went out uh, on his last day of work and at the beginning of this month that uh, was published on Green Biz because NRG wasn't willing to distribute it. Uh, then he wrote a piece last week um, that said, if I was right, why was I fired? Where he sort of muses on on some of the reasons that people are saying and some of the reasons that he may have been fired by the board. Um, and, uh, for, you know, and again, just for people who don't know David, he this is arguably the, one of the most progressive people in the energy sector uh, in terms of envisioning a clean energy economy, low carbon economy, and moving his company, which is, has a lot of polluting plants into this this new realm. I actually remember the first time I heard David talk about some of these themes. I think you may have actually been there, Joel. It was in an event that The Atlantic hosted in San Francisco yep. last year yep. about sort of 21st century energy. What does all that mean? And he sort of followed all of these really young, up-and-coming startup people talking about right. the crazy, like, I've got this contraption you can put on a wall and get all the energy you need or whatever. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, the the power producers kind of associated with the the incumbent utility world guys coming on what's he possibly gonna have to right, say the about grown-up is now in the room exactly and it was actually really compelling he was sort of saying like our businesses are gonna get their lunch eaten unless we really aggressively change and that was not what i was expecting yeah and that's i think what got him into trouble at nrg and, and you can read the piece from from uh, january 12th where he talks about that very very candidly so he's now writing for us, and he's written some great pieces, and the one he wrote this week is called Doing Business in a Post-Paris World, where he's now stepping away from his own experience in, at NRG and reflecting on that and looking at the market and what's changed and how companies uh, need to be thinking differently. Uh, we saw him at uh, in Paris, and he was, he was there despite having just been uh, summarily dismissed by his board of directors, but was part of the conversation and, um, uh, you know, looking at where all this is going and where these markets are headed. I heard you also talk to him this week, though. So what did he have to say about all this? Well, we talked about the piece he wrote and, and what he talks about is the need for companies to to adopt a, a new way of, of thinking about uh, comprehensive solar and renewable programs. Uh, here's the conversation we had. So, David, first of all, welcome to GreenBiz. We're so excited to have you contributing to the team. And I know that as you continue to explore your next opportunity, that uh, our audience is going to be looking forward to hearing what you have to say and, and hopefully beyond that into your into your next adventure. Well, th thank you, Joel. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be part of the GreenBiz team. So the piece that you ran this week titled Doing Business in a Post-Paris World, I mean, th this whole issue of companies stepping up in renewables has been around for a long time. And I'm wondering what your sense is of what's happened since Paris. Do you see a, a new era? What do you think is going to happen differently now that wasn't necessarily happening before December? Well, Joe, I, I think what's happening in mean, Paris is, I think, the centerpiece of a, a series of things that are happening. But it, it all leads to greater awareness. And big corporations, at least, all are 
almost required under Sarbanes-Oxley to engage in enterprise risk assessment. And the way the process works is every year you have a trained specialist that goes around and asks the management team, well, what's the greatest risk that this company faces? And I think after Paris, it's impossible for any company that either makes its living by producing fossil fuels and emitting carbon in the atmosphere or consumes a lot of energy to not be aware that the hourglass is running out on that type of corporate lifestyle. So I think what you're going to see is corporations probably led more from the uh, energy consumer side, dramatically changing the way that they think about their own energy consumption. You mentioned in the piece uh, some of the big IT companies, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, um, and you also mentioned uh, Unilever and IKEA, which is obviously outside that realm. Where do you see beyond the you know the IT companies? Where do you see the opportunities opening up? Are there some sectors that will be early adopters? Well, I think one of the earliest sectors that you'll see early adopters are people who actually own a lot of real estate. And I think one of the things that needs to be uh, clarified is in, in the United States, uh, for a variety of reasons, in the commercial sector. Probably most buildings, most buildings with flat flat roofs are not actually legally owned by the company that's occupying them. And I think that what you're going to see is that people who control the decision, for example, for rooftop solar, whether it be the owner of the building or the uh, or the person who's uh, leasing the building, are going to start to get together and find ways to start to get uh, solar on the roofs of a lot of buildings in, in a very quick time frame because I think it's going to be important in terms of their own carbon footprint, but also in the statement they make to their to their customers and to their employees. What do you think the biggest barrier is at this point to that happening? Is it it's not the technology. I think that seems to be improving, you know, by the minute. There's the financing piece, which seems to be growing in terms of the number of different models. And, of course, there's a policy piece. Where are the barriers? Or is it simply education and leadership? Well, I, I think the, the biggest barrier to to corporate, to the corporate world, is actually just in changing the way that decisions are made. Uh, r- right now, and I mentioned this in the article, for almost all companies, the decision to buy electricity is made very, very low in the procurement chain and usually on a highly localized basis. And one of the galvanizing influences of Paris is I think it means that awareness of this issue, issue now properly belongs in the C-suite. So I think that the chief sustainability officers, which almost every major responsible corporation has now, is going to be more empowered inside the C-suite to say, look, we can't just do the odd warehouse here or the odd distribution center here because the local people want to do it. We have to look at this on a systemic fashion. And so I think all the pieces exist if you want to put them together, the financing, the technology, the means uh, to do it. It's just that it's been more apathy. I mean, I think if you pulled the Fortune 200 CEOs and asked how many of them had been personally involved in a decision on where their company bought electricity from over the last 10 years, you would get a very small subset that had been involved in those type decisions, maybe only in the aluminum industry because that's such an energy-intensive industry. But I think that's about to change. What's going to change that, and and what kind of role do you think they'll be taking? Will they be actually specifying, or how's that going to work? Well, I think what's going to change that, and and you see – you see it being led by the likes of Paul Pullman at Unilever is an awareness that how how you buy electricity, where you buy it from, 
whether you produce your own from renewable sources, uh, which is sending a message to everyone that you deal with that you believe in sustainability, it's become, it becomes a defining issue for companies, and companies care what their customers think of them and what their employees think of it. So I think it's becoming a value statement in a way that it really hasn't been before. It, it also seems really complicated, uh, at least for a lot of companies, to figure out do we build, lease, you know, power purchase agreements, virtual power purchase agreements? Do we wait until it gets cheaper? How do we do this across utility service areas and political jurisdictions with different incentives? Uh, the, the complexity still seems significant. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you, Joel. I mean, uh, simplicity, uh, greater simplicity is is always welcome. But I would say that compared to some of the other things that big corporations do, this is not overly complex. If you focus on it, when you look, I mean, just one of the things that always is amazes me is if you think of the airlines, if you think of how reliable and complicated the uh, the reservation system, the computer system has to be of a major American airline, That's a that to me is a thousand times more complex than that airline deciding, you know what? I have hangars in 32 airports. I'm going to put solar panels on each one. I mean, that latter issue can be figured out pretty quickly. So I'm not going to say it's not complicated. I'm not going to say that greater simplicity wouldn't be a good thing in the corporate world, but I don't think that's the major issue. I think the major issue is awareness, a will at the top of the company to sort of address the, this issue change the way they buy energy. And I, I think that we have that impetus now. I think the complexity that you talk about and the fact that the rules are different in every location, I think right now that is more of an obstacle to home solar than to than, than the, to the growth of business-to-business solar. Is that because individuals aren't likely to sit down and figure this out, whereas companies have people paid to do that? That's that's right. I think uh, homeowners, uh, individuals, they have a lot else on their plate. I, you know, there's that one famous statistic that may or may not be true that the average American homeowner spends six minutes a year thinking about where their electricity comes from. That's hard six minutes to target. I think the the structure of home solar, the the uh, which is as you know right now in this country based on the 20 year zero money down lease the the lease structures the power purchase structures uh, solar renewable energy credits who gets the benefit what happens to your house if you sell it after a few years if you have a 20 year lease on the solar panels on the roof i think it's much more complex for the individual homeowner than for big corporations who have professional people who can figure it all out so you're bullish on uh, on the, at least on the corporate institutional side that this is going to continue or maybe even accelerate the growth of, of solar and renewable uptake? Uh, yeah, I'm very bullish. Uh, you know, right now what I would say, Joel, is I mean, I actually think in terms of distributed generation, distributed solar, a home solar has been a little bit out in front of business-to-business solar. If you were asking me to predict, I would actually say that over the next year or two, business, I'm actually bullish on both, but I think that a lot of the attention that's been given to home solar, that business-to-business solar is going to get more attention and probably make more progress over the next year or two. I think home solar also has a bright future, particularly if if the business model can be simplified and if the and if the customer proposition can be simplified as well. Well, we'll look forward to that and we'll continue talking about this uh, in the coming months. Um, David Crane, thanks again. Thank you, Joel.
this is the point in the podcast when we talk about what's going on at Green Biz. This week, I am personally neck deep in copy editing of our State of Green Business Report 2016. Joel, I know this has been your baby for several years now. Where where did this all come from? Well, this is actually our ninth uh, edition coming out. Uh, this started off, I guess it was, I want to say 2008 and it was really just asking the question, you know, as we report and write and look at all of these topics uh, day in and day out on the pages of greenbiz.com, I want to step back and ask the question, is it making a difference? Is it moving the needle on the on the big challenges of, of uh, the day and the things that companies should be doing and waste and water, carbon and, and, and toxics and all those things? And so we set out to measure it. Mm-hmm. And I know one of the big components is sort of a look at 10 trends that you kind of think are going to drive the conversation in the year ahead. And obviously, this isn't just any old year. We're fresh off of the Paris climate talks, uh, biggest year ever for clean energy. How did you did you think differently at all this year, putting those together or what influenced you? Well, first of all, I, I just want to say that those trends thing are, are, are very proud of those things. Because if you look at at what we did last year in the 2015 report, we wrote about stranded assets. We wrote about assets. We wrote about food waste. We wrote about science-based goals. Um, we wrote about you know just some other things that really did become part of the conversation, much more so uh, in in the during 2015. And not because we you know we we said it was. I think that we just saw that there were some interesting things on the horizon. And so we've had a pretty good track record at spotting some of those things. As far as this year goes. Um, I mean, I don't want to spoil. We're going to have a webcast on on February second, when the day we release this report, and I sort of want to do the reveal then. But you know, there there, and some in some ways, there's always some that you would expect would be in there, and some that hopefully you didn't expect to see. But you know, I don't think that uh, it's that different because of of climate change or COP twenty one or even the sustainable development goals. Those are uh, more future facing, I think, in terms of the next five to 10 years. And we're sort of looking at the year ahead. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I know the other half of the report, though, covers some really different terrain. That's much more data intensive uh, looking at things. This isn't a spoiler because um, it's sort of an evolution of data that you've been collecting, but looking at green building space, energy efficiency, some really interesting natural capital data. How, how does that all come together? Well, first of all, we do this largely with our friends at TrueCost, which is this great company that's uh, looking at at uh, natural capital measurements. And they, they, they track... Uh, some hundreds of natural capital costs for thousands, maybe four or five thousand companies. And let me just say that again: hundreds of different natural capital impacts, maybe five or six or seven hundred for four or five thousand companies. It's sort of mind-boggling. But what they don't do normally is they don't aggregate that to say, well, if you put it all together, you can look at this company or this sector. Uh, but we asked them to put it together in aggregate, uh, both for the S&P 500, so 500 large U.S. companies, and then for about 16 or 1,700 companies that are part of what's something called the MSCI Index. Um, and so we can look at both U.S. and global trends on these things. And we've got about 30 or 33 of these that, different things, actually measuring them over five years. Like you said, uh, uh, you know, use of green power and energy efficiency uh, waste generation, intensity of water use, greenhouse gas uh, emissions, but also how they're targeting. Uh, are they what are they measuring? What are they reporting on? Because a lot of this is about disclosure too. And so, how much are companies actually disclosing? 
Mm-hmm. And we'll be sure to include a link in the write-up of this week's podcast for more information about the webcast coming up on February 2nd for State of Green Business 2016. But how? where else does the report live? Where can people hear more about it? Well, there's going to be, uh, as there always is, an iPad edition, which is interactive, has some videos in it, and you roll over some of the charts, and the numbers pop up as if by magic. Um, and uh, it'll, it'll be, uh, I think, uh, a fun and interesting thing, both to peruse and some of it... Uh, I think much more to, to read, but we've got some new uh, metrics around companies that have green purchasing policies or how much uh, around uh, around divestment. Uh, so the amount, a uh, number of companies or amount of money uh, involved with uh, divestment uh, movement and low carbon investments and green bonds. So it's, there's a lot there. It's a, it's a lot to take in. You can also hear about it at GreenBiz 16, our event coming up next month in Phoenix. Yeah, we'll have a panel there. But before that, on February 2nd is the big launch, as I've said, and we'll have a, a, a panel conversation with uh, Rich Madison, the president and CEO of TrueCost, uh, my colleague John Davies, the vice president and senior analyst at GreenBiz, and myself looking at the trends and looking at uh, some of the metrics. So when it comes to the trends shaping sustainable business, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a sector where there's more activity going on than transportation. Listeners of this podcast have heard us talk before about all the activity with electric vehicles, self-driving cars, aka autonomous vehicles, and different sorts of ownership models or shared mobility, I think is now the preferred term of art. Um, And within that very active realm, there's the pretty busy sphere of urban mobility. And joining me now is senior writer Barbara Grady, who was at an interesting event in our hometown of Oakland recently that took on this topic. What, what were you doing, Barbara? Yeah, so I went to the launch here in Oakland of a shared electric bike program and the launch of a new electric scooter made by the Indian company Mahindra. They have a subsidiary nearby in the city of Fremont that makes these EV scooters. Mm-hmm. And they're called the, the Gen Z, is that right? Did you get to check one out? or they, Do they look yeah. fun? Yeah, they look very fun. I watched people riding them because the company offered you know, passers-by to take a spin on them. And um, I tried one myself, and they're pretty fun. At any rate, the big thing is that they are like a two-wheeled entry into this electric vehicle market. And the city's pushing it big time as part of its kind of whole sustainability play. And there's going to be a solar charged station where the bike share program is housed. That's interesting. So we're not talking about Ford or even like a specialized a car or bike company that people in the U.S. know really well. So what is Mahindra? What's their market share like? So Mahindra is a major automaker in India. And it also makes tractors and uh, aerospace products and auto parts, but its market is India. 
And with this product, it has chosen the U.S. to launch it, which is really interesting. Um, Why did, and I heard the chairman was actually here in Oakland for the launch of this. Why are they making that such a priority? Yeah, that's indicative, I think, of that they, that it is a big deal for them because they, Anand Mahindra, who runs this $17 billion conglomerate, came all the way to Oakland to launch this scooter, a two-wheeled electric scooter, which would seem like a small product within the whole realm of this huge company. But it appears that they have chosen the U.S. to launch this product and they think that perhaps they can kind of take the U.S. by storm with it because there are not other that many uh, two-wheeled vehicles, particularly electric charge vehicles in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I've been at an event by Toyota recently and others. I think the car companies that we know well in the U.S. are also eyeing this market. So it's really interesting that they're trying to get there early and that they're looking at this sort of shared model. But you also actually spoke with the chairman. Is that right? Yes, I interviewed him for quite a while and he pointed out how the rest of the world already uses two-wheeled vehicles and that Americans are kind of late to this concept and yet that it makes a whole lot of sense in this era of climate change and trying to reduce emissions and in this era where people are tired of traffic jams and finding parking spaces and all that. Mm-hmm. So. It's a scooter, but it's also an electric scooter, and it's also tied It's um, tied to the internet. It has an Internet of Things kind of dashboard where you can get all sorts of data right on Connected the scooter, yes, fancy. that's the word, yeah. connected scooter. And then lastly, the way it's set up in Oakland, it um, can be charged through solar energy. Mm-hmm. And do we know, uh, like, are they going to make these available for individual sales also, or are they going after that shared market really hard? Yeah. So they're they're already trying to pitch it on individuals and through the those shared networks. So they're launching one here in Oakland, but even the other day, while the chairman was in America, there were network people approaching him and saying, uh, we'd like to buy your vehicle and start a share program. Hmm. So they, they said they're in conversations with several kind of share bike programs to try mm-hmm. in other cities. So they can look at both of those markets. That's good. Yeah. And I, I also heard that it's the, the charger. It just plugs into a wall adapter. So you're not looking at the same sort of infrastructure. Yeah. As- That's one of the unique things. As opposed to having to have this wire come out of your home or something and plug into your vehicle. You apparently can take the battery of the bike right off of the bike, go into your office or go into a coffee shop or whatever, plug it into the regular electric socket in the wall and get it charged up. Mm. And do we know how much one of these will set you back price-wise? Yeah, just about $3,000. All right, less than a car. Less than a car, but nothing to really sniff at because I spoke to one guy who said he was looking at it as a kind of supplemental thing to make his commute easier and he wasn't sure it was really worth it for 3000 I think the idea though is to grab the younger generation therefore that's why they named it Gen Z I've heard it's going after a generation that's just getting into cars or maybe considering cars or maybe not wanting cars and they figure that by this price point they can attract them for a scooter rather than a whole big car Anyhow, it's an interesting market play, and it's pretty significant that the chairman came all the way here to talk about it and launch this product. So I spoke to him a bit about what the goal is for Mahindra. 
Here's what he had to say. But we are here in Oakland today to launch the Gen Z 2.0, a product of a company called Mahindra Gen Z, which is headquartered right here in the U.S., building a scooter that was created and designed in California and is being manufactured in Michigan for sale around the world. Why are we doing this? It's a very small business compared to our main business, which is in automotive products and in tractor products. But we believe that we have to start conforming to the core purpose of our group, of our group of companies. And that core purpose is embodied in the word rise. Rise is a philosophy of thinking big, of accepting no limits, thinking in an alternative mode and driving positive change even as we do well in business. And it became time we thought that we need to start recognizing the problem of climate change, recognizing that it is our problem, not someone else's problem to solve. And as people in the world of mobility, we wanted to build a product which could in fact allow every individual who used our product to be part of the solution. Because building a low carbon economy is not the problem or the private obligation of governments to do in Paris at COP21. It's something that every individual has to do. It's something every individual can contribute to. The Gen Z 2.0 scooter, which is an all-electric scooter, we think allows everyone to participate in building a low-carbon economy. We'll definitely have to stay tuned to see how those sell and how they're used in Oakland. But I also was working on a story last week about the world of four-wheeled EVs. And specifically, I was talking to Peter Kosak, who is the executive director of urban mobility for General Motors. Not exactly a conventional job title. Um, But I I was talking to him, actually, after they plunked down a cool $500 million in the ride-sharing company Lyft. And so Peter, um, he's really focused on how the trend toward ride-sharing and car-sharing could come with electric vehicles and farther down the road self-driving cars Uh, but obviously the the key force at work here is trying to mitigate carbon emissions from transportation yeah i think even mahindra is hoping to play on people's interest in reducing their carbon footprint and therefore they're going to look at this ev scooter that's both electric and not taking up so much room on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been, uh, I think Mother Jones had a really fascinating piece this week about sort of uh, whether down the road we'll be looking at parking lot less cities. No parking anywhere, with especially when you get to self-driving cars. Um, but micro-mobility, I think, is how a lot of people talk about scooters and bikes and how those are in super fascinating area. Um, but I did want to get to a clip we have of Peter who's talking about how shared use of electric vehicles specifically in cities could really be a game changer in terms of getting people familiar with evs and building out the charging infrastructure in areas that are much more dense so i'll let him take it from here shared use whether it's vehicle sharing or ride sharing is an ideal deployment um, uh, opportunity for new technology whether it's advanced propulsion or you know autonomous, because the urban duty cycles, um, congestion, you know, laden um, environments tend to have uh, duty cycles that are more stop and go, lower speed, shorter distances, better opportunity for charging infrastructure because it's just a more concentrated environment. 
And all of those things are favorable to electrification. That, that that type of an environment is one where electrified powertrains really shine. You know, it's wide open spaces on highways and things like that where you don't get the full benefits of hybrids and EVs and that kind of thing. That that's on the the the, the duty cycle side, you know, and. But even on the development side, if you have more aggressive duty cycles, you get, you know, faster technology turns. The vehicles see more aggressive use. The vehicles last less time. I mean, the diff- if you're developing a, a Chevy Volt or the Bolt, the new battery electric vehicle that we just introduced here in Detroit, um, if that vehicle is sold to a private owner and it sits in a garage, you know, 22 or 23 hours a day and is going to last a long time, you know, the opportunity for that technology to become outdated and the opportunity to learn from that technology in service, you know, the, the, it's, they're both lower. But if a vehicle is deployed as part of an on-demand taxi service or a vehicle sharing service and it's seeing heavy duty um, and it's doing the work of many, um, the, the opportunity to get a return out of that vehicle, the opportunity to learn about um, the technology and make faster technology turns, all of these things exist in whether it's vehicle sharing or ride sharing. And that certainly is the way w- that we're looking at it. And of course, you know, as we said in the announcement related to Lyft, um, you know, we, we, we think that the current ride sharing offerings are a step toward autonomy, you know, not having to stand out and hail with, with your hand, but being able to hail with an app and knowing what's coming and having what's coming, knowing where you're going and to be able to get out of the vehicle and have the transaction completed. I mean, all of that starts to feel a little bit like autonomous. The fact that there's a human driver behind the wheel, you know, in some respects, you know, is, is a bit immaterial from the overall system standpoint. Ending on a somewhat dystopian note there, when our cars don't even need us anymore. Womp womp. It's very sad. But anyway, thank you very much, Barbara Grady, for joining us. We'll be following much more about the crazy landscape of urban mobility. You're welcome. Till next time. Let's shift gears now to the week ahead. Joining me now is GreenBiz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. Hi. <laughs> How's it going, Elsa? Good day. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> good, good. So uh, let's talk about next week. What do we have going on? We have a story from you, Lauren, um, that I see you're halfway done with already about <laughs> the fight for a price on carbon. Uh, there was some momentum, of course, after the Paris Agreement and Obama's Clean Power Plan. What's happening now? Um, I look forward to reading that. Also, you're looking at weird materials in the circular economy, which sounds super cool and mysterious. Um, (laughs) And our Shift Happens column by Mike Wallace and Marissa Bridal, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, at Brown Flynn. We'll take a deep dive into sustainable procurement with examples from Microsoft, the state of California, and the federal government. That's the first in a two-part series. for. uh, So we'll watch for that on Thursday. 
Entrepreneur Jigar Shah writes about what he sees as a renaissance in manufacturing. He says now is the time for manufacturers to increase their energy productivity to get a competitive edge. What does that mean? Read about it soon. Plus, senior writer Barbara Grady will explore the floor of the Clean Tech Forum in San Francisco, which has been going on now for more than a decade, right? Um, so see what stories emerge from there this year. Cool. And then we've also got some good webcasts coming up. These are always free. You can find them at greenbiz.com at the events tab at the top of the homepage. Um, On February 2nd, as you've heard, we have the State of Green Business 2016 release that will feature both Rich Madison of True Cost and our esteemed Joel McCower talking about what's coming up in sustainable business. And then we've also got a webcast coming up on February 9th about getting to yes on renewable energy deals. So how to finally ink that wind or solar deal that you've had in the works. Great. Well, thanks, guys. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. By the way, you can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels if you're into that sort of thing, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And, you'll, of course, you'll find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter called Green Buzz. So sign up for that if you're not getting it. Send us your feedback, your ideas, and your comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And for all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>